for Change podcast series. I'm your host, Marvin O'Kello. Following the untimely death of George Floyd in 2020, I've taken on the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion officer for the Halifax Wanderers. As of 2021, we've started the podcast as a means of continuing the conversation in a safe space. My aim is that by having these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, we can begin to break down barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. It's been over one year now since George Floyd's passing, and I can confidently say that we as a club have embodied our mission, which is to bring our community together through sport. The question I asked all our listeners is, have you been involved in the changes you want to see happen? Today, I'm joined by Megan Neves. Megan Neves is one of the members of the Wanderers Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Megan was the first president of the Nova Association of Teachers for Equity and Education with the Halifax Regional Center for Education. Megan is a junior high school teacher with the Halifax Regional Center of Education. She holds a Bachelor of Arts with a major in English and a minor in History as well as a Bachelor of Education. Megan recently completed her Master's of Education in supporting diverse learners with needs and exceptionalities in July of 2019. In 2018, Megan developed a unit called Empowering Changes that aims to teach students how to recognize white privilege and how to use their privilege to create change. An experiential learning component of this unit was to bring leaders from the racialized communities into the school to share with students about their experiences with racism. Megan is involved in the Halifax community and actively engaged in initiatives, events, and discussions pertaining to anti-racism, poverty, and solutions for marginalized communities. She has compiled an array of research in regard to educating people about white privilege as her chosen master's project. Megan plans to further education as well as this work and complete a PhD with a focus on examining the literacy levels of inmates and the school to prison pipeline. Welcome, Megan. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Megan, we've known each other for a long time. And in the scope of you know, diversity and inclusion, we talk about um, how awkward and tough some of these conversations can be. And I'm happy to say that this is definitely one of the easier conversations to have because of our relationship. And I can't thank you enough for joining. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. To let our viewers know, why, why did you decide to be a part of the Wanderers Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee? Well, it seemed to correlate with everything that I've been doing for a long time. And um, it's really a great opportunity to collaborate with other like-minded people with similar objectives. And uh, especially when you told me who else was gonna be on the committee, um, <laughs> I was sold once you told me you were running it, uh, but then to hear that there were so many other powerful voices on there that I could learn from and collaborate with and, um, and reach such a cool audience. Definitely, definitely. And it really feels like a family within our committee and everyone's got their their different role and their different personalities but we share that common goal you know that mission that we want to you know bring the community together through this this committee it's been great uh seeing your growth in the last year as, as well as my own you know we've I, I don't think that either of us were in a committee before i mean i know this was new to me being in a committee what about you yeah, same with me. Um, a lot of the work that I was doing was um, in partnership with either like Dorico Simons in facilitating workshops on anti-racism or uh, perhaps like other another teacher or something like that, but never actually in a collaborative uh, diversity and inclusion committee. Um, so it was cool to have the focus uh, directly focusing on diversity and inclusion issues. So I was really honored to be asked to be part of it. What has changed for you in the last year? Um, because for me, the approach that I initially had, you know, has evolved um, to, to how I'm doing things today as I have continued to learn and, 
you know, refocus on trial and error, you know? So what are some things that you started off thinking was the right way of doing things and how has things changed in your perspective? A lot has changed. It's, it's amazing when you start really diving deep into some of these issues and, and how many levels there are, um, the things that you learn about yourself. And so one of the main things and one of the main changes that I have made is when you had first asked me to be part of the committee, I was uh, running a whole organization on my own, CEO of Empowered Community Engagement and Consulting, um, which originally was developed because Dorico and I had already been facilitating these anti-racism workshops for a few or a couple years now and everybody would send us individual emails and then I'd put all the information in the email for them to book us. And so it just seemed uh, more manageable uh, to just have the whole website where they could contact us and get the information for. But then I realized after a while, because I was a full-time junior high teacher and because those topics, especially after the death of George Floyd, um, was extremely popularized, everybody was reaching out to us to, to have this workshop facilitated. So I literally was educating from um, morning to night uh, with my junior high teaching job. Then I got hired at NSCC as a social justice and advocacy instructor. So I was also teaching college students in their second year social work program. And then in wow. the evenings, I was facilitating workshops on anti-racism with uh, Dorico. And I realized that that could be really problematic as a person who doesn't experience racism directly it's so um, important that I have time to reflect and then continue my learning because as I often will say to people is that it is it is a lifelong learning journey. Definitely. So I wasn't having any capacity at my end of the day to actually reflect on best practice. And that can be problematic. And I didn't yeah. want to also be known as just the educator. Like I was educating people to take action and how to do that. But I wasn't actually having any capacity left in my schedule uh, because I was being so overbooked to actually organize some actions um, behind the scenes. And that's where kind of that's why I started this stuff to begin with. So if I'm only educating other people to do it, but not having the capacity to do it myself, that can um, eventually be very problematic and performative. And that's not how I want to build my legacy. Um, it's not how I want to be uh, remembered. And I do not want it to look commodified. I think mm. the education aspect is extremely important. We're continuing to uh, facilitate those workshops, mm. but to actually take action and also reflect on best practice is even more important. That's incredible. You know, you said it, you said it perfectly. And I've shared that sentiment and when I first started this, you know, there was so many podcasts and, and community engagements and, you know, bookings. I was just, my time was overbooked. And it's, it's funny. It's by doing that, you don't have time to practice what you preach, you know? And, and like you said, like you talk, talking about all this action and stuff, but like how much action we're us doing ourselves, you know? And so it's important that you, you do have that, that pause, that time to reflect and take it all in, you know, before you go on to the next project or the next thing. And even more than that, you know, there's that saying, um, you can't um, share from an empty cup. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and especially in this type of work where people will automatically be drawn to you to tell about their experiences with the issues that you are addressing you take on that energy a lot of the time. So if you're not taking time for yourself to be able to work through that, then you're not going to be a good support person for that person to confide in. And so it's so important to make sure you still have time to, you know, take care of yourself and eat right and, and meditate and exercise and different things like that so that you are giving the best quality of yourself. 
Um, exactly. exactly. You can mentally restore yourself um, and also encourage other people to um, take care of themselves as well. No, that's, I couldn't have said it any better. And it's, it's good that you recognize that though. You know, so many people work themselves into um, quitting, you know, they, they get, they burn out because they don't, they go too hard too quickly. And then they're like, you know what, I'm done. This work is heavy. A lot of this work is heavy emotionally, mentally. And, you know, I remember that, that call we had um, before Christmas that, you know, those people jumped on and were trying to troll us. That was, that was heavy, you know, and, you need time to pause and just make sure you're okay before you go into another conversation and another heavy topic. And, you know, I've, I've really appreciated even on that call that we had, you know, that, that you were there as, as an ally, truly as an ally, you know, as somebody I've known in my life for what, like 15 years now <laughs> we've known each other. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, and like we had talked about before, we said like, it always feels like these topics and the things and the work that we're doing is there's a sense of urgency because there are people dying. Um, mm. There are people that are losing their lives to the justice system every single day because of racial discrimination and uh, systemic barriers and challenges and things like that. So it always feels like it needs to be done right now. And so therefore it's hard for um, people that are doing this work to take those that time for themselves because it's all about putting other voices and amplifying those voices that, you know, don't have space for that. And so that's why it can be exhausting. But we have to realize that in or this is a lifelong, unfortunately, it's not going to be solved in either my life or your life. Probably um, not. And so in order for us to keep up the pace and not burn out, we're going to have to learn to uh, make sure we do take some time for ourselves. And uh, because it is it is a lifelong pile of work to do. Um, Definitely. And we were even talking about before, you know, all the things we're dealing with in this scope of work is in addition to what everybody else is dealing with with the pandemic. You know, we decided we didn't even want to talk anymore about the pandemic because we've talked about it so much every day that it's not something I'm sure even the listeners want to want to, you know, the viewers want to listen to because it's just it's it's overkill, you know, but in our scope of work, we have to deal with all these extra emotions and feelings and then still be done with a pandemic. So Absolutely. you're right. It's, it's very important that we take time to, to heal and, and make sure that we're okay so that we can help others. So in your work, you know, you and Dorico, you mentioned, have been doing a lot together, you know, and that's part of the reasons why you felt so comfortable joining uh, the, the Wanderers Committee. What are some of the workshops that you guys uh, have been doing together? For the most part, it started the first workshop that we ever facilitated was um, the Canadian uh, Border Agency actually asked us to develop a workshop on white privilege. Um, and so that's where it first stemmed from. And then um, other organizations kind of got wind of that and wanted that same workshop facilitated. Uh, so then during the time that we are working towards this every so often we are constantly adapting it and adding more because we were learning a lot more along the way as well so we started facilitating workshops for different um, organizations government organizations um, nonprofit organizations to teach uh, people predominantly white audiences how to recognize um, systemic racism 
historically within Nova Scotia, Canada, local examples, what that looked like from past to present, how that impacts us today, what white privilege looks like in our society. Because oftentimes when we see things on the internet about systemic racism or uh, things in the news, people automatically default to these things happen in the United States or um, these things don't happen here. So it's really important to educate people of the prevalent issues in our society today and that Nova Scotia is far from exempt from that. And actually the UN is listed um, and compared Nova Scotia and called us the Mississippi of Canada. No um, because, yeah, and when they came here and assessed the situation of people of African descent in Nova Scotia, they compared us to Mississippi. And because we have a lot of work to do here, but oftentimes if we're looking at other places in comparison, instead of looking at our own issues within our own province, mm. and uh, that's part of the white privilege in itself is a lot of people have no idea what that looks like, especially when they're benefiting off the systemic racism in Nova Scotia. And so they can be oblivious to that. And yeah, so that's and, and just just to clear up to like what why is the Mississippi uh, comparison? Why what what is happens in Mississippi that they're referring to as a you know a parallel? Well, we have, a, that's a very loaded question, um, just because there's so many different examples of systemic racism right here in Nova Scotia. Um, it's ingrained into all of the systems that govern our society in a way that white people as part of the privilege are oblivious to. And so if we look at the over-incarceration of black people and indigenous people, um, the racial profiling that came out in the police report of 2019. They said this before uh, the police report came out, but it was no secret. Uh, They looked at where our black communities are located and displaced outside of the city on purpose. Uh, When we look at all of the things or just the way in which uh, our education system has so many disparities and uh, the disproportionate numbers of students that were placed on IPPs or suspended at a much higher rate or the literacy rates of African Nova Scotian communities, all of these things that thanks to the Black Educators Association that has been around since 1969 um, and has pointed out to our current education systems um, on many different occasions, but yet a lot of the requests and their advice to uh, stop stop cycles from happening um, have been still ignored. And that's why we're still seeing statistics from 1994 uh, reflective in our education system in 2021. Because again, um, it is a privilege for me to even speak on that because and because it was developed by the Black Educators Association and mm, it's been around right. for many years, but they've been silenced and marginalized in so many ways. And so that right there, um, you know, there's so many different examples on how we can compare ourselves, uh, Nova Scotia to Mississippi. And we had segregated schools in Nova Scotia. We had all of that. So we are not exempt from that racism. racism. And we've had, and a lot of people, when we talk about you know, even slavery, even in schools and the education system is the fact that many of us are, we learn about the transatlantic slave trade, but we don't learn that there were slaves auctioned off here in Halifax or that there was public lynchings on Spring Garden Road. So oftentimes, even growing up in the education system, you still think of, well, at least we're not as bad as the United States, but we're not learning about the prevalent issues that are still impacting um, African Nova Scotians today. So much to unpack there from what you just said, but, you know, the main one is, I hear it all the time, you know, we don't have racism in Canada, we don't have racism in Nova Scotia, we don't have racism in the HRM, you know, there's just, just this last week, you know, there was a story about in uh, Bridgewater, there's a couple that went to the beach, the, the male was black and his wife is Caucasian, and they went to the beach, and within two minutes of them being at this beach, you know, these teenagers pull up in a truck with a noose, 
and they they displayed the noose to him, you know, to try and carry him and essentially make him feel like you don't belong here, you right. know, and, and that's that's just it's 2021, you know, in in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, like people don't don't read about it. And a lot of that is because people don't publicize about it. It's it's pushed under the rug in so many ways. And to go back for you, you know, because I can feel the passion when you speak, you know, how much this means to you. When did this all begin? You know, this 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 journey of education, is it something you always knew you wanted to be when you were younger that you wanted to be a teacher? Yeah, I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. I was always um, very passionate about social justice issues. That's kind of like everything I watched, everything I read, anything like that was in regards to um, kind of amplifying marginalized voices. But that was no by no means excused from the, the white privilege that I carry. And so one example, and I thought about this earlier, is that like, even though I knew racism exists, I still believed growing up early on in, in Lower Sackville in a predominantly white community, even though I had people of color as my friends. I remember being in a car actually in high school, and I'm ashamed to say this, but it's the reality of things and it's me acknowledging my privilege is the fact that I was in the car with uh, your sister and um, a friend of ours Noel and we are having a conversation around racism and I remembered uh, to this day saying something like oh well Nova Scotia doesn't have racism oh yeah and, <laughs> just, and they were like they looked at me and they were like are you serious? Like whatever, whatever. And so now that I look back and um, how much I learned, like I was ashamed of that. Um, mm. But that was the core of my privilege is the fact that, you know, when I seen a police officer, for example, I, I really believed that he was there to protect and serve me because essentially he was, because that's how the system was developed to protect mm -hmm. and serve people that look like me. But a lot of them were also developed to purposely, like RCMP, for example, whole reason that RCMP was invented was to, they needed people to remove indigenous children and, and force them into residential schools and then arrest their parents if they refused to do so. The history of policing, um, you know, they needed uh, slave uh, catchers. They needed people night watch to go out and, catch people who have been enslaved and bring them back to their masters so the systems were literally built to protect white people and um, criminalize people of color and keep them segregated from white people because that was seen as protection um, which is disgusting in itself so then as I moved into the north end of Dartmouth just just before you do move on I want to discuss what you just said there for a second because there's so many levels of that systems that are set in place from years ago from right from the beginning they were set to set up to fail for marginalized communities for, for the uh, minority communities for black people for you know for indigenous people and right from you know things like the housing market like you know which started even in the u.s black people were put into different areas than white people and if you as a black person want to go into you know one of these white picket fence communities you know they even changed the laws so you couldn't and they didn't spell it out that it was because you were black but they in a roundabout way they made all these laws that if you were black you couldn't join these white picket fence communities which is where segregation really took off because once people were white people specifically felt like oh even the law is protecting me to make sure that black people don't come into uh, my community and that was the first opportunity for people to be like no this is not the first opportunity there's many but that was another opportunity for people to be like this is wrong like those are just people you know like if they want to live here they have kids they, they bleed like i do they work like i do like it blows my mind how much acceptance there is in history of, of mistreatment of humanity you know just because of things that we have no choice in like color 
you know. But it's, it's so important to learn that history because then you'll know exactly why our Black communities are located where they're at today. Um, you'll know exactly why we have wealth disparities. One of the examples of white privilege is that, you know, white people had the privilege to be able to pass down land and resources and homes to their next generation to accumulate generational wealth, whereas mm -hmm. the people of color in Nova Scotia, if you actually learn like the truth about history and you learn about, you know, uh, the Black loyalists who had their homes um, that they worked really hard to get in their lands built on the Shelburne riots, white people got angry because black people had jobs, even though they were getting paid a quarter of the wages as the white people and very little people had jobs and still experienced poverty and uh, immense amount of racism and segregation and all that stuff. But we had white people burn down the houses of the black loyalists and then they migrate into the city and then some of them become self-sufficient once again um, in the community of Africville. And then you see again being coming self-sufficient and then had their homes bulldozed down by the government and uh, many people taken out in dump trucks and forced into public housing complexes. So again, being self-sufficient and then not be and having your own home, owning your own land, all of that stuff, but not being able to pass that on to your next generation to accumulate that generational wealth. But now you owe the government monthly uh, for your rent um, in their public housing complexes. And then because they want, um, you know, white people in those homes, because the, the land becomes, you know, more um, desirable for them, they again, displace the black people wherever they want, and usually outside far away from the white community. So it's, it's so important that we, you know, in our education system, we tell the truth about black history. And, and, and to mm. me, that's white history, right? And it's like, it's the part of white history that nobody wants to claim, but in order to understand exactly why uh, things are the way they are today and what systemic racism looks in, like in our society, um, we have to tell the truth or else we are conditioning whiteness as a norm and we use the education system to do that. And so what happens is you condition white people to be racist by not telling the full truth. Because mm -hmm. when you um, don't understand how your white ancestors have created the challenges and barriers in black communities, then you see a lot of white people blaming black communities for the issues and challenges that they face without understanding how our ancestors actually created those issues and then use our current day systems to keep those issues in place and keep those people oppressed. Definitely. And, and just, just not to interrupt you, but it's important because everyone recognizes how much black people, you know, pass on that history of slavery. So we never forget, you know, and, and there's reasons for that. But on the flip side, no way that white people need to forget the history that they play, you know, and because I've heard so many people say, you know, oh, that was my great grandparents. That was my, you know, that wasn't my generation who did that. So like, why should I feel some type of way about it? But it's the same thing, you know, that it, we weren't the ones who were, you know, taken from Africa and, and enslaved and made to work, you know, on, you know, cotton fields and all this, but it is still affecting us today. So, mm -hmm. And it's we're still feeling that oppression today from white people who, you know, have the privilege. And it's crazy to me how people don't understand the white side of education and, and the role that they have to play in moving this forward, because it will never move forward if it's just black people or minority people trying to do it, you know, because... I was watching actually just yesterday this Netflix series um, talking about food, you know, and I forget the name of uh, the show specifically, but they were in Benin where a lot of the slave um, ships began and on their coast, they haven't changed even um, the roads that, you know, the, the, the people would march over four days leading to, to the, the harbor where they would be shipped off, not even knowing where they were going to go. 
and they still eat the same foods um, that they that they ate, and they celebrate it as something that is part of their history. They own it, you know, even though oh, it was something that was so negative, they still own it and say, yeah, it wasn't a great part of our history, but it's our history. And they encourage people from around the world to come there and take that march and feel, you know, what other people would have felt, or just think about, you know, how those people would have felt, you know, being shackled and in their wrists and, and legs, taking this four day march with minimum um, food and water, and then have to go across the Atlantic and repeat the same thing in even worse conditions. And people don't want to hear that, but that's the reality of what happened to black people that led to the systems that are in place today. Well, it's all intersected because then you see with the generational wealth gaps, and then like you talked about the discrimination in even purchasing home in a white community um, and all of that stuff. And so when you understand that, and then you understand how then we criminalize people of color for the poverty issues that we created. And if you look at where our, our police stations are, for example, it's hard to think of a, a black community in Nova Scotia that doesn't have a police station located right within it. Um, and uh, they're over-policed. And so they actually charged between 2006 and 2017 from the March uh, 2019 police report. It stated they charged one third of black males with a crime, but it's not because black people are committing more crimes than white people. It's because they're being over policed in their communities. And, yeah. and so that's why we need to understand kind of like the truth about history, acknowledging that. And oftentimes we keep that out of the classroom, which it's highly um, detrimental because in results, like if, if that's a core white privilege, if we don't know exactly what the issues are or how we contribute to them or how we're responsible for them, how are we supposed to fix them without accepting that responsibility? Definitely. And to even give a further example, you know, you mentioned my sister and I remember around probably would have been around that same time in when I was at AJ Smeltzer when we first moved here from uh, New Brunswick. One of my first experiences while I was trying to get to know people and assimilate and feel like I belonged here. You know, some of the friends that I made, unfortunately, weren't the best influences in my life, but you just want to belong, right? Anytime you're in summer's new, you want to feel like you're not an outsider. And, you know, through that, unfortunately, I, I hung out with some kids that were into some bad habits and we went to a convenience store one time and, you know, they're picking candy and they're putting into their pocket and they said, Marvin, you know, like grab one. Unfortunately, I was naive and I just wanted to belong. And, you know, so I grab one, I put it in my pocket and, you know, I have these three white friends, males who all have done it and nothing happened to them. The moment I did it, you know what I mean? It was like the guy who's on duty on the camera. I was like, okay, now the black kid did it. And out of nowhere, this room, this guy comes and he just grabs me. And I'm just like, whoa, like what's happening, you know, and my three white friends, they just ran, you know, and so I end up getting the police called on me for something I'd never done before. And it's actually encouraged by these kids who clearly had practice and been doing it a long time. But I was the only one who was caught. And, you know, the only one who this person who was watching the cameras clearly was like, OK, I've got him, you know, so that's just a, one example of many, I'm sure, that other Black people have faced just because of their skin color, you know, and that's the lack of privilege that I have and the privilege that those white kids have. Yeah, and and I, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I really am. And there's so many people that that happens to. And again, and so that's one of the things that I teach at school is teaching the predominantly white kids like how to critically think, right? So because that person that was, you know, accusing you or or singling you out, that was a confirmation bias, right? Like it's like you're fed through the media, uh, people of color are committing more crimes than white people, even though that's not the case. Not the case at all. We're just getting caught. Right? Because it's because too, like systemically um, over the years, we've kind of been taught 
um, you know, represented in the media? How are people of color represented in the media? Or, um, you know, oftentimes like black communities are all the negative connotations associated with the community. Those are what they represent on the news. So it teaches white people to fear those communities. And so what happens is if white people are fed that the stereotype that people of color steal, they're going to only look when they're find, trying to find somebody who is stealing, they're only going to look at the people of color. And if they find a person of color stealing, that's a confirmation bias. They're going to think now that they, they were right for looking at that person, but they're going to yeah. miss all the white people going at the door with the exactly stuff, right. And even though they had it all on camera, right? Like there was no um, yeah. action after for those three white kids, even though they would have had all three of their faces, nothing ever happened to them. But, you know, I not only had the police called on me, but I had to be taken home to my parents' house in my neighborhood in a police car. So then that perpetuates it even more. Now the neighbors see the police and they're like, okay, what? Oh, the black families moved in. Of course, they're, you know, having police at their house. Right. And it's just the system continues. But sorry, I just had to get that one out there. I've ne- I've, I don't think I've ever talked about that, but that's part of what I mean in my intro that you have to have these tough and awkward conversations because people don't know how long I've even kept that inside. You know, like that's something that I've always felt so wrongfully done by the system. And even my friends who never spoke up for me or, you know, stuck around to be like, just support, you know? And so to move on, you were talking about how, you know, you and Dorico have been putting on a lot of workshops, specifically on white privilege among other topics, but how did that evolve into you beginning empowering changes? So it actually started with empowering changes. Uh, when I was doing my master's degree in 2019, um, part of my uh, project, we got to choose what our final project would be. And it had to be in relation to um, inclusion because it was a master's of supporting diverse uh, students. And so I wanted to create a unit to teach my predominantly white students. I, I teach in a privileged area and I want to teach them how to recognize systemic racism and white privilege because we've we've, we've used the words a lot and again sorry to interrupt but what what is white privilege when you say that what is the layman's way of explaining that there's a lot to it uh but essentially oftentimes people you know will, will refuse to use that term because they have it misconstrued with like other types of privilege and so oftentimes they'll confuse white privilege with social economic privilege so you know white people who have uh grew up in poverty or had a hard life or experienced trauma will often say well you know i'm far from privilege i don't have white privilege because you know i struggled i grew up in a poverty-stricken neighborhood i did this but um white privilege has nothing to to do it's not saying white people don't struggle and it's not saying white people don't have hard lives it Mm. primarily just means that your skin color did not play a factor in making your life harder boom and i'm so glad you said that because so many people do misconstrue it you know i'll be honest we even had somebody on our wanders um inclusion our community page we have um resources for indigenous for black history for pride for uh, various topics and under the black resources um you know we have this one book that's called white privilege right and it talks about everything we're talking about here but i get an email from somebody saying hey you have a racist book you're promoting on your website the exact reaction that the book talks about you know, and, and my response was like, did you read the book? And they mm-hmm. said, no, I'm not going to read a racist book. And I was like, well, you're literally pointing out why you need to read the book because you're doing what the book teaches you not to do and understand why you're doing it because you haven't looked inside. You just are being defensive about something that is just the tip of the iceberg. 
right. but you need to learn about what's below surface so that you can actually understand how wrong what you're saying is. Absolutely. And I've even, I've had um, people because I teach about anti-racism or because I teach on white privilege, they've either asked me to change the name or the title of our workshop because it's called mm -hmm. Systemic Racism and White Privilege. <laughs> and uh, they'll say, can you put something a little bit more positive in there, you know, than white privilege? And I'm like, you know, you need to call it for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't, if, if you're acknowledging systemic racism, you can't deny white privilege because in order to acknowledge that there's systemic racism in our society that white people actually benefit off of, you can't say there's no such thing as white privilege, right? Mm. So it's, it's, you have to, in order to use your privilege to create change, you need to actually start by acknowledging, acknowledging it. Acknowledging it. Right? Exactly. So, it's like, it's like any sort of therapy you go through. What is the first two steps that you do? Hi, my name is Blah and I have a problem. You know, like you, it has to be a starting point and any steps you take um, outside of that are impactful if you don't do that as a first step. Absolutely. And, and so to go back to like the empowering changes through conversations, well, empowering changes through conversations is an is a event that I um, usually have pre-COVID um, that is part of the unit. But I thought it was so important because a lot of the students that um, I teach will grow up to be nurses and doctors, be in different institutions that have systemic racism ingrained into them. And so if they, it's a lot easier to teach a 13-year-old what that looks like than a 40-plus-year-old kind of already stuck in their way. And so once they turn that on, and a lot of them, it's been really cool because they pass that information on to their parents. And so I've had parents email me and follow up and say, like, I learned more about systemic racism uh, from my child yeah. than I learned um, in my whole life. And like, and that's why I applaud you. I applaud you because when we grew up through, you know, junior high and high school, there was not the level of education that you're doing now, even in junior highs. Right. Like there's not, there's not even that level of education in a lot of the institutions that give us the degrees to qualify us to be teachers. Oh, and so, God. you know, there's there's teachers that are qualified to go into the education system and be teachers and be history teachers, but know nothing about black history, know nothing about indigenous history beyond the transatlantic slave trade. And if we're only teaching students, uh, white or black, that the only primary factor to focus on black history is the transatlantic slave trade or black people in positions of inferiority, what's that doing to their subconscious minds? That's Why how we have people saying in junior high, like, to be specific, like you did in junior high to my sister, there's, we don't have racism here because you don't learn about it in school. So you're oblivious to it. Absolutely. And we're also, it's a way that we're taught about racism. You know, growing up, I was taught that racism had to be an intentional act that was either using the N-word or um, a specific directed level of hate towards a person of color. So in result, a lot of white people are like, I'm not racist because I haven't used the N-word or I don't mm -hmm. um, I don't hate people of color. Or the classic, I have black friends. Exactly. So now the way that we teach about racism has to go beyond and deeper than that. And so it has to, you know, address the ways in which it's ingrained in the systems that, you know, for white people, we can. It's our privilege to be oblivious to it. It's a, our privilege to not know how it disproportionately targets people of color in a very negative light. And that's why I started the unit, too, is that we need to revamp how we teach about racism because, and we have to show what it looks like in our society today. And we have to give direct local examples because we can't expect 
the children who are the future to change anything or disrupt these cycles until they know what it looks like. And unfortunately, it's part of the privilege in itself for, you know, when people of color speak about these issues, they've been unfortunately silenced in so many different ways. And so that's why it's so like we need white people to talk about this and then we need to get them to talk about it with other white people in order to collaborate and actually create some systemic change because black people didn't create racism, white people did. So we need to stop asking black people to fix it. Exactly. And we need to stop asking black people to educate them on it. We need to stop asking black people to be the ones to point them to the right resources. We need to stop asking black people to just do anything about racism because they are the ones who experience it every day. It's like, I can't tell you how frustrated I get with people like, Hey, Marvin, I see you've been doing diversity work. You know, what is some, uh, what are some things you can teach me? I'm like, have you checked it out? Have you listened to the podcast? Have you, you know, visited the Wanderers Occlusion in the community page? Have you done any of that? No. Okay. But you expect me to just teach you it right now in the moment because I have nothing better to do with my time and I haven't done that already. That is just a basic step that people need to erase is don't go to your black friends, your black teacher, your black coworker, your black, do your own research and get to a point where it's engaging with your black friend to say, hey, Marvin, I've, I've read this book on white privilege. I've attended this workshop. I've listened to your podcast. I've read your you know, resources you shared on the page. And I have some questions. That is a conversation I'm receptive to. Yeah, it, it's, it would be exhausting. And also you have the potential as white people, we have the potential to inflict more trauma on the people of color that, you know, we're asking. Because even, you know, white people that come to me, oftentimes their approach is more so like they're ready to start a debate with me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it exactly. for people of color, right? I've had people, parents uh, of students say, you know, my child's too young to learn about this. Oh, uh, I've heard that from so many teachers. It's unbelievable. And it's just like, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but I have to um, actually save my compassion for the students of color that are living, experiencing those racism acts. And so, you know, if your child, if you think that your child's too young to learn about it, well, you're, that's, that's an entitlement of, or that is the epitome of a privilege in itself, right? Exactly. You're so privileged, you're passing on that privilege to your child in the wrong way. No, it's very true. And, you know, I was going to ask, you know, how can people use their privilege to help others, but you just nailed it in many different ways you know there's but it's, it's an ongoing learning thing so like you know even myself like I had said before right is that um I'm constantly learning and and the thing is white people are gonna mess up right we're gonna mess up I messed up you know they call, I, it, they call it trial and error for a reason try absolutely. like you make mistakes right but the important part is that you listen to the people of color they if they're calling you out for saying something offensive or um, problematic or anything like that listening responding with gratitude you know instead of getting defensive and saying you know I'm not racist this and this and giving a, a thousand excuses as to why you can't be racist just being like accepting of that and um, valuing what they have to tell you and saying you know I appreciate you so much for for telling me that now that I know that I'm going to do better and I'm exactly. not going to do that again. Right. And, and actually being sympathetic and empathetic to it, to a T and showing that, because I can't tell you, I've experienced it with friends. I've experienced it with people that I have a professional relationship with. I've experienced with people, you tell them, you open up and you be vulnerable about how you're feeling about, you know, even this work I'm doing is very heavy. Sometimes there's days where after sharing experiences, like I just shared with you, something I've never really done, it, you start to feel it, you know, and, and, and when you share, some people will be like, oh man, that's, that's really tough. 
But here's the problem that I have, you know, and they'll try to make it like it's almost equivalent to like, you know, their situation with work or whatever that they're dealing with is even remotely the same. It's so frustrating because you're downplaying it. And so many people downplay the seriousness of, you know, these feelings, this continued racism. It's just, it's not easy to experience, let alone talk about every day. And as white people, you have to remember, like, we can't, I can't ever tell you I know how you feel, right? Um, exactly. And so exactly. And I'm even thinking or, or, or feeling privileged enough to basically when they're being called out on saying something problematic or offensive or anything like that to be able to even make excuses for that mm -hmm. is the problem in itself it's like the you know people seeing uh people of color on the news uh talk about racial profiling or anything like that and you know saying things like oh they're using the black card and and all of that stuff well part of my privilege of being a white person speaking on these issues is that I don't get those kind of ways of discrediting what I'm saying and um, which is disgusting because it's like you know you have the Scott the police report that we talked about before that was released in uh, March of 2019 mm -hmm. but it took a white guy Scott Wortley from Toronto to come down and produce this report yeah. on racial discrimination where people of color have literally been saying this about in Nova Scotia <laughs> for hundreds of years yeah. and they've been silenced but then all of a sudden it's seen as fact when a white guy comes down with a bunch of uh, statistics and proof and evidence and things like that which is a perfect Why? example of using his privilege for good Absolutely. So it's like, it's important that white people are doing this work. Um, but we have to also remember, and this is another thing that I'm learning as well, is that, um, you know, saying no to some of these speaking engagements, there's times where, you know, I, I have to evaluate it and say, you know, well, why are they asking me to teach them about anti-racism when there have been organizations developed by people of color that have been around since um, 1969 or, um, you know, different, and they've been trying to do this work, but yet it's part of my privilege for them to even want to hire me to educate them on this so that right there is a problem in itself and it's a way that uh you have to uh, as a white person doing anti-racism work you have to know your place and you have to realize that the objective is not to take up space for people of color but to educate other white people to make room for people of color to fill those positions and that means that white people have to give up some of their power yep. and that's where the real work starts and that's yeah. where a lot of the entitlement goes where you know white people are quick to have a anti-racism workshop or um, get education on the topic but to follow up with the actual action means that they're going to have to give up some of their power to make room and space for people of color to fill those positions because we don't experience that stuff. Um, so, and, and that's where it gets really difficult. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of action in that because not a lot of people are ready for that, but they should have been ready for it a hundred, hundreds of years ago. Right. Definitely. And, and, you know, you really struck it. People do have to be able to give up even power, you know, like it's such a, tough thing to do because everyone wants power you know almost everybody there's some people who you know wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole but those are rare those are the anomalies you know everyone else wants to feel like they have power they have resources there there's something special you know and it's really important now in this shift a lot of people who have it recognize it's actually more beneficial if I say no to that job that I was offered because I know somebody who's a person of color who actually deserves it more you know, like it's a tough thing to do. You have to be unselfish, but that's what this whole thing is about. You have to be unselfish, take an unselfish approach to how do they feel? How do, how do people who have been experiencing this their whole life feel?
You know, mm-hmm. how do I put myself in their shoes and then help them based on that knowledge and that thought process? And another thing is too, is that like, you know, you see this, I mean, it's all intersected, but you see this a lot, you know, even when people first witness like the video of George Floyd's murder and you see white people acting so shocked saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this police officer murdered this black man. And right there in itself is oftentimes a look at the video, but not actually reflect on, you know, their own racism, that they're the, the ways in which they actually add to the problems within the systems that led to that murder and how many other people and, and focusing on just George Floyd, but knowing how many people have died or been murdered by police, even post George Floyd, yep. right? So knowing that nothing actually changed within the system. Yes. Yep. we more aware but by hyper focusing on oh my gosh i can't believe this happened this has been happening yeah hundreds of years right but for white people when they're being shocked and everything like that that is white privilege right is the fact that you can even be shocked by that where so people of color have known this in and and experience not just people of color other people of privilege also have known it armad aubrey's and everybody else has been publicized it's it's been an ongoing thing people just we're in this like scroll culture i like to call it you see certain news and you're like, ah, I don't really want to hear about that scroll. You see that shiny shoes that you're like, oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, there's a friend who, you know, just, I don't know, they got some interesting food and you, you check that out. But then the hard articles, the hard topics, people just scroll, you know, and, and that's why I think it's so important the work that you're doing in the school system, you know, to make sure that even in junior high, they're learning about this. Even when you have parents coming home saying, uh, I don't think my child should be learning about slavery. That's ridiculous. Like it's yes, actually they do, <laughs> you know, and, and I commend you for the work that you're doing in that field, because I wish I was more educated, even myself as a black person in junior high about this. I remember having, even in high school, my African Canadian studies teacher was a white woman mm-hmm. and no, no disrespect to her, but that's where we talk about passing power, you know, and ha- passing on opportunities to people who are more deserving. And, you know, did she do an okay job? Yes, she did an okay job. But should, would it have been more impactful on somebody who was Black and was of African descent? And maybe there was nobody who applied, but that's where the system needs to fix that and put people who actually have lived the experiences, because a lot of this, you can't learn. It's important to, to do learn the things you can change and a lot of this you can't learn. Like when people ask me sometimes about, you know, what is your role as diversity, equity, inclusion officer? It's like, and like what um, experience do you have that qualifies you to be that? It's like, well, I always start by saying, first of all, I've lived, I've lived this my whole life. From the moment I was born in Kenya to this very moment, I've experienced this my whole life. I've grown from it to a point where I'm very comfortable sharing and being knowledgeable about it from very many angles, not from just racism or, you know, um, gender equality, you know, growing up with three sisters or ageism, you know, growing up in a church that I was very involved in with the elderly people in, in the church, you know, as somebody who was an usher at the church, like I've literally been living a diverse and inclusive life because of the way I was raised mm-hmm. and therefore more qualified than some people who have multiple degrees. Because as you mentioned, sometimes, you know, they have these programs that you get the certificate at the end of the day. But what did you actually learn and what do you actually know about what Black people go through? Absolutely. And when you talked about um, like the teacher, for example, you, you know, Right now, our school system is made up of predominantly white teachers. And so you're going to have that happen. There's a lot of people of color, students of color who do not ever 
get a black teacher. And so if we actually change what we're teaching for one at the institutional level, nobody should be qualified to teach history. I'm, I'm a person who um, was qualified to teach uh, history. However, um, all of the black history that I learned, I had to go outside of my educational institutions, my post-secondary education institution. And even though it already takes six years to become a teacher, then I did a master's, master's degree uh, that took another two years. I still had to do research outside of those institutions institutions in order to, um, you know, know something about Black history beyond the transatlantic slave trade. So again, it comes from a systemic level where it's like, you know, teachers mean well, they're well-intentioned, they're working with the tools and resources that they were given from the system, but you're not going to have uh, more Black teachers until the Black students are actually learning education that they're engaged with. Relevant to their history, and it's actually not just about the transatlantic trade trade. It's about what's going on in Nova Scotia, what's going on in Sackville, if you're going to Sackville High, what's going on in you know Halifax West, if that's the school you're going to. It needs to be appropriate to the geography of the students. Yeah, but also beyond the transatlantic slave trade, there's so many Black inventors, doctors, lawyers, um, William Hall, uh, Mansa Musa, all these amazing, resilient um, leaders and contributions of Black Canadians that are being, you know, tossed to the side or not acknowledged in the classroom. And instead of taking pride of their in their education, why would you be engaged when you're only learning about your ancestors in inferior positions? Why would you be proud to kind of tell people what you learned? at school if the things that you're learning at school does not honor your history and the resiliency of that. So I really believe that, you know, um, it has to start at an institutional level. There are people, teachers graduating from the Bachelor of Education a degree that are qualified to uh, be a teacher, but they don't know anything about the Black Report or Reality Check Report or all of these uh, things that disproportionately targets uh, Black students and disempowers them in many ways. But the Black Educators Association has worked so hard to, um, you know, display to everybody. But yet, if we're graduating, it's not that teachers are wanting to ignore those needs and uh, break those cycles. It's the fact that if you're not taught about them, or if it's not mandatory by the systems that qualify you, why would you do anything about it if you have no idea what the issue is? And yet our school board, again, at a higher level, um, is aware of the Black Report. And you know that students are graduating grade 12, not knowing how to read. To me, that's the school to prison pipeline, um, because uh, if they're graduating grade 12 and they can't read their world, how many jobs that um, will mean can they get that makes them self-sufficient, feel exactly. empowered um, without having to reveal to anybody else that they don't have to read besides criminal activity in our society. But yet there's no supports in junior high for students that uh, don't know how to read to work on their literacy skills, yet they're going to French class, but they can't read English. So yeah. there's so many things in our education system that could easily be changed. Yeah. And if we just listened to the work that's already been done, then we would have moved a lot quicker and we wouldn't still see the same statistics um, in 2021 as we did in 94. One thing that even to push out a bit further, it's if you're going to create programs and, you know, grants and things that are there to support Black people, um, the worst thing I've seen, even from, you know, when I was leaving high school, applying for universities, you know, there are scholarships for Black, especially African Canadians, but they don't tell you anything about it. They're not accessible. They don't, they don't promote it. They don't, it's like they don't want people to actually use them. And I remember even at Dalhousie, I was talking to one of my professors about, you know, the scholarship and if all of them get filled every year and they're like, no, 
And I was like, isn't that a problem? Like, wouldn't, hasn't somebody at some point been like, how do we get these fulfilled? There's this money that's not being used that could really help the people of black descent. Like how, mm-hmm. how are, how is that a thing that you, you create a, a grant, but you don't advocate and show people how to use it and how to access it and how to apply for it and how to get it. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, Ashley Hill, I don't know if you know who that is, but she just recently started this um, prep academy, it's called, because based on her personal experience going through uh, post-secondary education, she realized, like, I had no help in high school. There was no one there to show me how to apply for these scholarships. There was no one there to, and because, um, you know, generationally, like, she didn't have anybody to kind of teach her um, what that's going to be like. So she she just started up this prep academy that is actually focused um, on working with students of African descent to help prepare them for post-secondary education, help them with the application process and applying for scholarships and things like that, because she's seen the gaps in the cycle and uh, the lack of supports that were in place for students of color. Now, we've, we've covered a lot, Megan. <laughs> we've covered a lot today, and we, you can never cover everything, but I'm really happy that you're so willing to, you know, open up and, and, and feel what you're feeling, but, you know, get it across to other white people that it's okay to feel, but you got to act, you know, you got to, you got to support, you got to say it with your chest and you got to do something. And you're somebody who does that every day. And I'm happy to call you a friend, happy to have you on the diversity committee. And, you know, I really think that people should not only hear, but try to, you know, mimic your approach because it's a good one. And um, so thank you for that, Megan. Thank you. So I understand you have a new position um, recently. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I had somebody reach out to me from NSCC, actually. I wasn't actually trying to find any more work. I had, <laughs> at the time, I had felt like, you know, two full-time jobs on its own, being a junior high teacher and then facilitating the workshops. And that's um, hence why it, you know, made me take down the website and things like that, because I was like getting way too overbooked. But I also had been asked to be an instructor at NSCC's, the social justice and advocacy course for uh, second year social work for that program. And so I I was honored because actually somebody in the program had recommended my name. They were looking for a teacher, but they wanted somebody who actually practices what they preach and advocates outside of education. And so that was my first time. I was, it was pretty cool. I got to teach at the college level and we talked about the things that me and you talked about today. Um, But I think it's so important, especially in a field of social work to kind of understand, especially as a person who has a lot of privilege to acknowledge acknowledge those privileges and be aware even when working with some of the most marginalized people you know you really find the words that sometimes I struggle to find (laughs) but that again comes with the ongoing education and even these conversations I am learning so much from every one of these conversations I have on these podcasts and I can easily say this is the top two I've learned in terms of the podcasts I've done there's so much knowledge you just shared with me that even I wasn't aware of. So, you know, that's, that's to say to everyone listening that the more you learn, the more you realize how little you, you know. And if you don't have these conversations, then you don't have the language to continue that advocacy. Um, you know, and, and especially white people, we need to have these conversations with other white people. And so that, you know, we can stop perpetuating some of the trauma that we are inflicting on people of color by you know asking them to explain it to us all the time like you were talking about before we need to do the work within themselves and so that's why like my empowering changes unit is for I wouldn't I wouldn't facilitate that with the predominantly black 
uh, student audience because that's not my place. Um, <laughs> but because I have white children that are, you know, looking to understand a little bit more and how do you break the cycles without acknowledging our responsibility in this? And so, you know, we focus on throughout the unit recognition um, of all the past activists and what they were fighting for through historically and then what are activists fighting for today and then connecting those because you can connect anything that's happening today by learning that history and teaching that history. And then we focus on justice. And so we gather evidence for newspaper reading um, assignments and things like that, where we look at various articles about racism in Canada and they gather statistics and evidence and then they become action researchers. And that's where I had brought in the um, Empowering Changes Through Conversations event where I had uh, leaders from Black and Indigenous communities um, come into our school pre-COVID times and the students got to interview um, the different individuals about their experiences with systemic racism and learn about those firsthand stories. And for many white people, um, oftentimes the problem is we don't have those experiences. We don't have, we don't get to listen to those firsthand experiences unless we are doing work within community, unless we have authentic relationships. And we're not going to build authentic relationships unless we learn how to have those respectful conversations, right? Um, so teaching awesome. that is so important. And then the final step is um, development, development, and that's where they develop action plans to fight racism. And so, and that's why I call them empowering changes, because once you know better, you, you do, do better. better. And so, you know, giving them a chance to try, like be innovative in your ideas. If you had all the resources in the world, and that's the thing about doing it with children is that oftentimes as adults, we con constantly put up barriers because we, you know, we lack um, imagination sometimes because of all of the ways in which uh, we know kind of how the world works and we stop our ideas before we fully um, implement them because we think of all these challenges. But for children, like if you say no barriers, think outside the box, if you had anything you want or anything you need, what kind of action plan could we develop to stop this from happening? And the amazing ideas that they come up with at 13, it makes you think about our political leaders and like, why can't they come up with these actions? action plans right and they have the resources and they, they have the resources power. they should be seeking out the education they right. you know it's and they have the education and they're not doing anything with it um exactly. and so if you're not going to do anything with it then move out of the way and put a person of color who can do something um wow. and, that's, and that's what we need to do right and so teaching children to recognize that and valuing those perspectives is so important so that way if they don't have the solutions themselves just make way so that somebody who does can actually implement them because right now you're just taking up space that's contributing to the problem and so that's the final project and then we um, I have uh, applied for a grant um, for many years so that I could uh, give them prizes. And so then they present their projects to a panel of Black and Indigenous judges. And the judges pick uh, the top prizes. And then the top prizes usually come from, well, they've always come from a Black-owned business. Um, so this year was Trev Clothing. And so they, uh, and so I got to give back like um, a bunch of money to Trev Clothing. And every year I tried to, whatever grants I have, put back to towards uh, community and Black-led initiatives or Indigenous-led initiatives. And so it's just full cycle. Um, and the children get exposed to the uh, businesses and they get excited and passionate about it. And they also develop like um, interpersonal relationships with the individuals. And they won't ever forget their firsthand stories because that's, that's always going, like, you know, even the conversations I've had with you, even the conversations I've had with Diana, uh, your sister, or any people of color in my life, like, those were the greatest teaching moments for me. 
not not what I got in my degrees you know what I mean like I have three degrees but I learned more from working in community with people who've been incarcerated people who lived the experience Mm -hmm. my lesson plans are you know to teach white students what I've learned however the most I learned was from people of color who actually were willing to share those experiences with me and so it's my duty to continue to share that knowledge with other people so they can stop um, having to tell that story so much, right? That's and that actually uh, make it so the stories eventually don't have to happen. Um, and that's why I felt comfortable, you know, opening up about what I did, what happened in junior high, because I know giving you that knowledge, you're going to use that for good and you're going to make sure, you know, and you're welcome to share that with students and everybody else because it's it's relevant. And by opening up, you're able to equip that information and use it the right way. And I really, truly hope that you get to a position where you can do even more, you know, and I hope some of those people that you mentioned, you know, if you have the, the, the position, the power, and you're not using it for anything, move out the way for people like Megan, because I know that you would do it. I appreciate that, but I would, I would give it up to someone of color if they were wanting to take it from me, and I could just, you know, be on the sidelines telling white people, like, you well, like you just said, though, remember, it, it has to be collaborative, it can't be just, Absolutely. so that's why I think, sure. you know, you would do a great job working in tandem with somebody who is of color to make sure that the white angle and the white privilege is understood, you know, and it's not just the black people who are continuing to have to try to change something we didn't start. Absolutely. I really hope that people understand, you know, it's not easy to talk about what we just talked about, but what's easy will never change us. What's difficult is what allows us to grow and thrive and, you know, challenge, um, challenge different perspectives of things that we've learned that we're now realizing we're very wrong. You know, we're going through this, this change in, in this last generation, especially, you know, that we're recognizing that the way things were done in the past were messed up. And we, this is our chance now to change those systems and practices and, you know, things that are taking us in the wrong direction. So that's why I'm really glad in your last um, points you made that you acknowledged, you know, your privilege, talked about educating yourself as the next step after acknowledging your privilege and then you know three three splits kind of into two ways but if you're not willing to do the work move out the way but if you are you know you have to make sure that you partner yourselves with not only um, white people to get them to understand their privilege but also with the black people who have experienced and lived those situations so I think you're doing an incredible job um and i'm proud to be working with you to continue to do it even within the wanders and i'm sure you know you'll educate us um and i look forward to having you for a lunch and learn at some point so that we can continue the education absolutely i look forward to it as well thank you so much awesome and uh everybody you know please take the time to listen to learn and please talk about your friends, you know, to your friends about what you listened here, engage because it doesn't help if it comes in one ear and doesn't come out the mouth so that it can go into another ear. Mm-hmm. And also acknowledge that it is a lifelong learning journey. You're not going to, you know, you listen to one anti-racism workshop and then think you know it all. It's introductory. Um, and then, you know, you might mess up when you're doing anti-racism work. And the key aspect of it all is that you have to keep going. Um, you don't just let somebody who told you, you know, this is not how you do it, defer you from doing the work at all. Uh, you have to keep going and you have to keep um, talking about it because at the end of the day, it is a privilege to 
um, opt out of the conversation. It is a privilege to not have the conversation at all. Um, and oftentimes white people have a fear of having the conversation, but real, for black people, it's not a choice. Um, that's, th that's a thing and they're actually fighting for their lives. So if you're, um, you know, if, you're, if your problem is, or your fear in having conversations about race is getting uncomfortable, then you need to embrace that because you could be saving somebody else's life. How much growth do we know happens in, in comfort zones? None. None. So you got to leave your comfort zone if you're trying to grow people. All right. So once again, I want to thank you, Megan, for joining us today. Um, I know this is not our last conversation. This is one of many. Um, but thank you for what you do, how you do it, and with the energy and passion that you bring to it. Thank you. So that's another episode of Together for Change. And me and Megan have been working together from a ways, but together for change. Oh,